Hello everyone, this is Wayne Ram, programmer here at KGLP Radio 91.7 FM Gallup, New Mexico. And today I've got with me Stephen Jacques, musician, songwriter, and he is coming through our area. And I want you to have a chance to hear what he has to say today. Hello, Stephen, how are you today? Hello, great, uh, Colin, talking to you from Richmond, Virginia today. Very good. Well, you've got, you've got a ninth album coming out and it's when's the release date on that september 3rd and it is called soul hydraulics yeah it'll be on spotify and every other platform and yeah that's under the name steven jacques j-a-c-q-u yes on spotify we have another record there called charmed to death so during covid we recorded over 20 songs because there wasn't any radio station to go into or the venues for the tour date so we just stayed in the studio for about a year and a half stand safe yes, that's good yeah so soul hydraulics was that produced by john morand who's known for the cardigans and even hansen carbon leith joan osborne and some of those alt-rock bands like Cracker, Sparkle Horse, and David Lowry. So producer John, Rand, John Morand, the Sound of Music Studios in Richmond, Virginia. And we also had my longtime producer, Alan Weatherhead, um, who hails from Wisconsin, who's now in, in Asheville, North Carolina. He produced six of my Box of Moxie records He's a multi-instrumentalist and worked out of the sound of music too. So he's now in Asheville, that's Alan Weatherhead. So he mixed this record, mastered it. So yeah, Soul Hydraulics coming out. We released James River Swim and Left LA, which is a comical kind of celebrity, celebrity comical song that has a lot of energy on that. and. We had about 10 musicians on this record. The last eight records I did, it was Alan Weatherhead, Miguel Lopestando, the drummer, sometimes a woman on backing vocals and myself. So Alan's a multi-instrumentalist and proficient at at least six instruments. So he was, you know, a big part of getting submission admission and um, you know, many other records we did, Moonlight on Wings and um, Saltwater Magic was another record we did in Richmond. So in the last four years, we've done four records. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Submission Admission, Saltwater Magic, Charmed to Death, and now Soul Hydraulics, as I said, Left LA and James River Swim, both have YouTube videos that are live um, to check those out. And the tour starts in Telluride for the radio stations next week and goes out to Moab, Utah, down to Taos, Las Cruces, and then hopefully um, finishing up in Tucson. Well, good wishes on the tour. And that's going to be you. Are you playing your instrument and are you and or are you doing any backing tracks on any of those tunes? Well, I'm going to do, I'm going to bring my Martin D35 into the studio. It's a brand new Martin guitar. And I might have a woman for backing vocals. 
when I'm local on the East Coast, I'll have another guitarist in the studio, but this crisp Martin guitar is so beautiful. Well, it's just like, you know, if you you love some of the old like Jackson Brown or like um, some of the, you know, sort of those beautiful love songs and stuff, I'll be playing some stuff like that. Like something that you like by like Van Morrison or Jackson Brown, those type of songs, it's alt rock love songs, basically this record with kind of a soul hydraulics, the current record is kind of a, has kind of an industrial feel though. Cause it's got like, it is love songs is kind of a background canvas, but it's songs like jet fighter, man, um, soul just, hydraulics. Just the, title, the title itself actually kind of exudes that kind of a notion. Yeah, well, at first I was, I'm a mechanical engineer and I knew it was going to be where the rubber hits the road. So, um, but it's also kind of love songs and like the song Soul Hydraulics is about a guy who's a forklift operator on the Jersey Shore. And then he kind of hits the town a lot, tossing love around, you know, so he's this fictional character. And then we have... um, uh, many others like Tollbooth Lady, Offshore Oil Days, as um, a cousin of mine worked on the offshore oil rigs off the, in the Gulf of Mexico. So it is where the rubber meets the road. You could kind of think of Bruce Springsteen meets Wilco type of thing with the background canvas of kind of a love song type of thematic thing going on. And then, of course, James River Swim, we have Terry DeSita, who's a fantastic vocalist, and two other women, the lead guitarist being Leslie Williams, and then the great Chrissy Lozano, Lozano from Richmond. She's probably considered the best bass player. So it was a little bit of a Richmond super group, and Johnny Hot, who was in the House of Freaks on drums, Stuart Gunner, and... Um, John Moran, the producer, even played keyboards on some. So we had a total of 10 musicians in a 10-month project, but basically 17 months in the studio. How would you say that your music has morphed a change from your first album with, with Moxie to today's music, your today's album? Yeah, well, um, Intrepid Souls in 2011 was my first one and my first record. And that was kind of the time where we had a real estate. I was a builder in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the University of Virginia is. And there was a bit of a real estate collapse. So that's where Intrepid Souls was born, which was produced by Mark Graham in Charlottesville, Virginia. So then, you know, um, I, I... wanted to go to a bigger studio or, you know, hit, get connected with a producer um, who, so I long to make a long story short, I found the sound of music in Richmond, Virginia. And that's where David Lowry of Cracker, John Moran and Miguel Lobastando all ran that. So flipped over the Cracker CD, saw that they were being recorded an hour from me in Richmond. And then that's where the next, Basically, the next seven records were done um, from Dreams from a Canyon and Surfing the American Dust Bowl, all produced by Alan Weatherhead. Um, 
And so, yeah, so 10 or 11 years, we have nine releases. Okay. The, uh, the venues, uh, the, the locations you mentioned are in this current tour, other than the ones you don't yet know whether there's an extension to. What size venues would you say those are going to be? Um, for, well, the for, for the tour? Yes. Yeah, so for the tour, I'm mostly doing a total of five, six, seven radio stations. And I'm still trying to pick up some evening things. So the focus on this one has been radio, but Chicago and Detroit and Indiana and Ohio, our fall tour is going to be a total like 10 or 12 days of evening shows um, as things open more. Well, they were opening up more and then the Delta variant comes in, but, and then most of those places are actually booked my booking agent was talking and you know because there's so much pent-up energy to get into it they're booked out but then the COVID variant comes through and who knows what that's going to do by October but the game plan is to have about 10 shows in the fall but I'll probably be playing some art galleries in New Mexico uh, that we pick up in the next week for the evening shows of the uh radio station tour okay hey um i understand you've lived in a number of places how would you say each of your locations when you've lived in different cities and places influenced your music or your uh your approach to music well going back well starting from the beginning i, I would say so the um i would say when I was a builder in Charlottesville, Virginia, I was working with a lot of characters, let's so to speak, <laughs> probably 25 subcontractors on each project. So I, I, can I was imagine. a builder, so I have the experience of that. I'm living in this farming, Charlottesville, which is a farming and university town. But the songwriting process and the influence on your music and what you're writing is totally a culmination, a convergence of many different things. Mm -hmm. So it's the music you're listening to, what you're strumming away on the guitar yourself, you know, me creating my own songs. I've published 99 songs now. So the location, I think there was some rural influx in the rolling countryside of, of Charlottesville and then having all these, interactions with all these guys that were working for me building custom homes um but i lived in washington dc before that in los angeles i did a little you know some small hollywood like small movie parts in the 80s and then moved to, to washington dc and was a consulting engineer and an engineer and a manager talk about uh, was, talk about hollywood what did what did hollywood do in terms of influences for you I imagine there's lots of uh, media, lots of uh, concerts, lots of uh, interactions possibly. Tell me a little bit about what happened in that regard. Well, <laughs> I wrote, well, the current song Left LA will explain a lot of that, but I mean, I just, the whole experience there was, you know, I met Joe Piscopo because I was in this movie called Dead Heat and a couple just extras, very young, I was in my twenties. And so, that experience of seeing some live music and stuff of course my car was stolen 
when I lived there, but I was up in the Hollywood Hills and working, you know, some part-time job and then getting small movie parts. So I was a little bit turned off by LA in, in a way. I, it wasn't really my scene. Very dry, uh, good bit of smog and all those lyrics in sort of a comical way are in that song, Left LA, that we just released with a music video too, but which is doing quite well out there. But, um, you know, that was when I was in my 20s. And um, so, you know, it's been quite a while, but... Um, were you yeah, actually doing music at that point? Excuse me? In your 20s, were you actually uh, doing music at that point? Yeah, well, um, I wasn't recording or playing. So when I, I learned my first chords when I was a teenager from a friend of mine, David Wood, after school. And then finally during college or whatever, high school or college, I bought my first Yamaha guitar. So I was always strumming. It was decades later before in my 40s before I even recorded the first record. So I was busy with this engineering career, project management, building, you know, decades of that before mm -hmm. I actually had time, which was still in the evening to write these songs. So that, so starting, that's the next subject. How do you get inspired and how do you start something and overcome fear, right? Yep. Whether the first time you play the clarinet, first time your dad's trying to get you to play lacrosse or baseball, right? So that overcoming fear, oh, I'm going to fly into Europe for the first time. What's going to happen when I get there, right? So overcoming fear and starting, the key to anything is to start and at least try and you can do it in your e in the evenings, playing some piano or your free time. But I've always found that hobbies and just trying something instead of just sitting on the couch watching Netflix, you know, try something, little poetry, little journaling or whatever. So I, I never knew that, you know, in 2011, that right now we're in a few hundred radio stations and having all these great articles written by music journalists on these new records. But when you start something, you never know what it's going to culminate, you know, where it's going to take you. Right. But everybody's very supportive. And, um, you know, the songwriting process is different for everybody. So. And yours? Yeah. So for mine, I get an inspiration from like nothing is ever. So Wayne, for me, I don't know what everybody else does. It's the melody that comes to me, grab my acoustic guitar, which is right behind my desk at home. And I usually wait. If I just wrote a record, let's say I just wrote 12 songs in the last month, right? I will clear out months. Like I'm talking three, four, five months of no writing at all to build up this new event, which is never planned, never rushed, always fresh. And I'll just get this feeling like, oh, I can feel it. I'm ready to write something. I'll grab that guitar and just strum that C or that E minor or that G and boom, it just comes out. And that's where, uh, like I, the song, um, there's this one song, Come to Me, Marie, that I just put out on Soul Hydraulics. That's about a woman running a 
desert farm in Arizona, not far from Sedona, the weekend rodeos and the last cowboys around, right? So it, it's from a trip a decade ago to Arizona. And then some memories from that trip in Taos and, and all this. And then the fictional character takes a lyrical ride, right? So then that's where the that's where I can easily write the poetry based on events that really took place or I observed. And it's just, for me, it was kind of effortless because I was doing so many years of engineering and project management. It's the, I'm a artist at a heart who studied the sciences, right? Mm -hmm. Just like you uh, are probably a technical guy who loves the art of music, right? So, um, I met a lot of very interesting DJs who are both technical and creative. Yeah. Um, so everybody's writing process is different. And I think Tom Petty said he got a lot of lyrics down and then he was setting the melody. And he, sometimes he felt like he was fighting it the whole way. Mm -hmm. I think that's what he said. Um, for me, it, it can also be a, a simultaneous confluence where it comes out at the same time and I grab it and that song, Come to Me, Marie, is just, mm -hmm. come to me, Marie, you know, just came out at the same time. Yeah. Hey, uh, when it comes to lyrics, are you a, a strident uh, rhyming lyricist? Are you freeform? Are you somewhere in between? Well, that's a great question. Because uh, uh, Alan Weatherhead, the producer, um, I was doing some things um, that were more of storytelling on a couple of them that were out of the verse chorus cadence. Mm -hmm. um, if you go back and look at this Jackson Brown song called A Song for Adam, which um, David Geffen mentions in this Netflix movie, he said, oh, listen, this, this song will make you cry. And then they launched Jackson Brown in this amazing career. Well, that is a complete story telling of like nine verses, okay? So verse, chorus, verse, chorus, like the 14 line right. stanza or whatever, right? So mine's a, mine is storytelling with a very earthy, raw feeling to it. And my voice is kind of raspy. And, um, you know, I think a lot of it for me came from, I came right off the job site. So I was like a guy out in the field who brought some lyrics and some real life experiences of 25 or 30 years of work into the studio. So I think that coming right off the ranch or off the farm or off the building site like I did is what the producers like Alan Weatherhead and John Moran probably liked because they could sense this guy was out there living life, working, building houses, whatever. And that whole life experience was brought into the studio. So let's say, opposed, for example, as opposed to writing it at age 21 when I haven't experienced anything. Okay. Well, except for maybe of, breaking up with a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of the, of the, you know, working and, and having, let's say you had one or more songs already, the beginnings of, do you then, as you're working, do you explore ideas in your head around lyrics and, and, uh, or do you just, you set that all aside and then when you get back to your writing place, you do that. Um, go ahead and clarify that one more sure. time. Sure. Uh, so you've got a, you've got a song idea, the melody, maybe the, the hook, I'll call it. 
and you're the next day or week you're working on the job site and are is during that time do do certain ideas then start to flourish in your mind either you cap you leave them in your head or you write them on paper right. and when you go right. back to the writing space then do you take those ideas or does everything developed only uh you know after after the after the work for me and maybe this comes from the organized project management side of me of one thing at a time it's the same every time for a decade grab the guitar sit down and it just comes out in less than 15 minutes the songs written so there might be some minor editing or I'll play that thing on my acoustic John Moran or Alan in the studio and say, hey, what do you think about this? And they might tweak it. But for me, it's almost like something that was channeled down from the heavens or something spiritual because all 100 songs that I wrote came out and just rolled like kind of effortlessly. And I didn't work on the song over a week. I would sit down and I would finish the song. Now, there's a couple times I got the chorus melody set and then the, I'm sorry, the verse melody set and then the chorus melody and just two lines and then I just left it and went to sleep and finished it the next day. But I'm a night owl, so I pretty much wrote them in the evening or when the moon was rising and when the stars were aligned. And for me, they just, uh, for me, I was always about sort of systematically getting it done, but also not rushing it, only writing the song when I was ready. But I don't know when I'm ready, and I don't know what the song is going to be, even, sometimes even five minutes before I write it, because I'm thinking about something, then boom, like Blue Sky Cowboy. Right. Uh, so it just sort of the idea presents itself in totality at the moment that you're ready to write it. Exactly. And there's no, um, and it's, it's, you know, the, the rhyming, the poetic rhyming of the lyrics, it's, it actually is pretty, um, an, an, a pretty amazing process, um, the way it does flow. But remember, COVID, well, <laughs> COVID was easy for me <laughs> because I was used to silence for a long time and I'm not building anymore. I'm like just, doing some songwriting now and some other things, but I'm um, in planning tours and all that stuff. But yeah, unplanned and fresh. And then, so Paul McCartney was interviewed on YouTube. I saw this and they said, Paul, you might've been Charlie Rose or somebody like that. Can you tell me, how do you write a song? And, he, and I just love this. He said the true honest thing I've been trying to say. He said, I don't know how to write a song. He said, you know, lovely Rita, you know, what, how did it come? Well, you know, I was walking down the sidewalk and then boom, boom, and then meter made, you know, and I just sat down to the piano and just boom, 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 boom. And he can't read sheet music, just like Elton John never wrote the lyrics, right? So some of these things make me feel good <laughs> where I'm like, oh, I can't read the sheet music either. But yeah. you I, may, yeah, if it, Elton, Elton didn't write the songs and I did. So I was like, yeah. ah, it made me, feel, made me feel good that I, I did something there. Yeah, different artists have different skill sets and they uh, exactly on solo or, uh, or in partnership with one or more people. And you've, you've indicated that your producer, your, your uh, 
the person you mix, you know, there's a certain roles that they play in helping you pull a songs, the, the, the raw content of it into orchestra, if you will, orchestrations or the instrumentations. And I wanted to ask you what tended to be the most prominent instruments uh, in the majority of the songs you've recorded? Well, I would say, obviously, the good lead electric guitar, but, you know, and, and then the keyboards. And then I think the synthesizer keyboard combination with Alec, Alan Weatherhead, with some, he did, you know, a couple, he did a good amount of work with Sparkle Horse with the, the late, great Mark Linkus. But, and then I really love the little addition here and there of pedal steel. Just like I saw Wilco, Jeff Tweedy the other night in Richmond at Browns Island and they had this wonderful pedal steel guy. And mm. this guy Pistol for Cracker plays pedal steel for Cracker. And I'll tell you, I just love that little twang it has. It's almost like you're riding down to Nashville to New Orleans on a road trip. And it's just that cool, swell of a soothing sound that pedal steel has so alan will do a combination and you know the thing about alan weatherhead and john Miranda is i think they have 200 or 250 records of platinum here and there with carbon leaf and the cardigans to their name so you're stepping into the studio with a couple guys who can grab three four five instruments and pro and play them proficiently mm -hmm. So they are judicious in their implementation of what instruments are coming next. And I'm standing there with a couple of guys who have 25 or 30 years experience. So I'm just going to take their advice and let them guide me. Okay. But they're, they never want to disrupt the, the intent of the artist. So they usually our John Moran, I liken him to Van Gogh, he'll, he'll say, hey, Wayne, I want you to sing and play, grab your acoustic and I want you to sing this in the first time around, I want you to sing it and play your guitar at the same time. I just want to hear you. And then he'll walk out of the room so you're not distracted. And then he'll be walking in and out of the room while you're playing just to, so you, you're right there and he gets the embodiment of the intent of the artist. Mm -hmm. And then we're tracking it. First, we're going to do guitar, then we're going to do vocals, then the bass, the drummer comes in, then we're playing bass. And then that layering of keyboards next, right? And we're going to bring that lead guitar in there to snap it all together. And then later, maybe a little brass, maybe a little pedal steel. Yeah. And that's like this record, Soul Hydraulics, produced by John Moran. Alan was sort of the last guy to mix and master, so he was adding... Uh, you know, some of these, maybe some sounds of wind or, you know, some little um, buzzing sound in Jet Fighter Man, a little yeah. buzz inside of yeah. the fuselage there. I was thinking about everything from the synthesizers and the, and the horn sections and such as, and all those other items as being perhaps what we might term as sweeteners, uh, kind of the finishing touches, the polish, if you will, that uh, kind of solidifies it in, in one particular direction or the other. I wanted to ask you too, uh, you, you mentioned New Orleans. What, what if anything does New Orleans and Louisiana have anything to do with you and your musical experience or your? 
Well, my grandparents were born in, in 1898 in New Orleans, 1899 in New Orleans. Last name is Jacques, you know, my last name, French. Yeah. And so my family's from New Orleans, and I've been down to the Crescent City a few times. And like I said, a cousin of mine worked off the offshore there for a couple decades. So in New Orleans is an interesting place. Um, it's, you know, it's a it's humid. It's a good mix of Creole and the culture and the bayou. Um, How about the I write about I've written a good bit about Texas and Arizona. So offshore oil, I started tapping into New Orleans. Take away the New Orleans party scene and you're left with this pretty cool, you know, humid. It's a pretty cool place, you know, it's musically and Anders Osborne and all those guys are down there for so long. They yeah, just had yeah. so much great stuff. But yeah, my grandparents grew up there in the early 1900s. Yeah, I've seen uh, Anders Osborne and I really like his, his uh, groove. Oh, amazing. I was flying to San Francisco to do a show at KXSF and uh, at Stanford University. And I flew out of New York and Anders was there in Brooklyn the night before my flight. And I'll tell you, it was one of the greatest shows of my life. And I've been to thousands of shows and it was, man, he is something. And if he grabs that acoustic, he can go fast. He can go mellow. He can go love songs. He's an amazing, yeah. just like Steve Earle. You know, he's in the, or Towns Van Zandt, the, you know, the late, he's great. So you're, you're kind of, uh, I think in a way you're circling back to musical influences. And I wanted to, to cover that in a little more depth with you to kind of see, you know, the, the soup to nuts, the, uh, the spices, if you will, that have kind of uh, either influenced you or that you admire. You know, I think when I was in my, a teenager and when I used to visit my sister at the University of Virginia in the late 70s, somebody popped on Lawyers, Guns and Money by Warren Zevon, right? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Elvis Costello, that first cassette tape my brother or I bought after the eight tracks was, I think it was Imperial Bedroom in 1978 by Elvis Costello. Um, some of the, you know, and of course, you know, making movies by Dire Straits and the amazing Mark Knopfler. I just, you know, the bluesy rock guitar man by Mark Knopfler. It's just so, so amazing. And of course, I love, um, I love Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead and the San Francisco blues. Um, uh, what was it? Something when I, something roses. Um, can't remember that song. Um, Anyway, yeah, so, so many people, you know, and, and we, I guess we're, we kind of steal, I mean, so many of these people from 50 or 60 years ago, we're sort of, we're not really, you know, alt rock came along, right? But are we really inventing something new in a genre? Well, I don't know. I don't think so. If you look at who the Mississippi Delta and the blues and so many things that influenced the Rolling Stones from the Mississippi Delta. Um, I don't think um, I'm doing my own independent thing that's very unique, different from other people, but in a macro sense, we're not really like inventing something new. 
Right. Well, um, music music styles kind of come and go, and they return. And partially, I believe, because where individuals who then take up music are influenced by some style of the past. And then, like you said, and yourself included, you find a way to reinvigorate it, to reconstitute it, as it were. And I find it kind of interesting and clever that your newest album has that kind of the mechanical that uh, I'm going to use the term automation, the hydraulics, the component to it, which is it is that is it kind of really a, a significant departure in terms of the the music you've done and recorded in the past? Um, I think it's similar, just a different theme. Um, one other thing of influence I wanted to point out because I just had a thought. When I wrote Yellow Flowers about a friend of mine who grew up on a French farm and it goes, but in the morning they, we would kiss near yellow flowers and then it goes, hit by all the sun's rays. When I'm singing that, it's totally David Lowry of Cracker because I love when David does that really soulful, upbeat and sort of raspy, um, kind of up-tempoed vocal on that. Um, so, you know, listening to like Camper Van Beethoven and Cracker and Sparkle Horse and all these alt-rock bands. But when I was young, you know, I was bands like the Violent Femmes would come through town or the first one of the first concerts I went to was George Thorogood and then um, uh, Muddy Waters and Eric Clapton played at the mosque in Richmond in I think 78. So in Richmond and in Charlottesville where the Dave Matthews band is from and Corin Capshaw is, Charlottesville, Virginia because of Corin had so much great music in the last 25 years. Um, for a small town, the downtown mall there, I, I saw over, I must have seen over a thousand shows there in 25 years. And the Southern's there and the Jefferson, and there's a little amphitheater in Charlottesville, Virginia, but for a small town on the East Coast, I think that place could take on any town in the entire East Coast for great bands coming through in the last 25 years because of Corn Capshaw and him being like one of the top two or three most powerful guys in the music industry. So bringing all that into Charlottesville is huge because you're out there listening to it. You know, a small town like that, if they didn't have a guy like him, you know, who's coming through? Who's, you know, I mean, so we were fortunate to have Dave Matthews band and, you know, they started out there. Um, and I've met Dave and Carter, the drummer there, he's a great guy. Um, so yeah, that was a little bit of Virginia influence stuff. Okay, very good. Well, um, let me let me ask you about the uh, your college radio station kind of the centric uh, audience that I, at least I'm I'm sort of getting the the sense of how how does how do you develop that and how how does that working for you? Well, Tinderbox Music, and that is our seasoned publicist, Krista Valinskis up in Minneapolis. They are my publicist, so they get a lot of the, our new records out to the radio stations and also out to dozens of music journalists to review the records. So some of that with submission admission, a box of Moxie record, 
um, they started promoting some of that. But the first five or six records, I didn't do anything. I was almost, you could kind of picture it like somebody getting practice in the studio in the first four or five, six. And one of the problems with that was I was spending so much time in the studio and not on stage. But then I said, oh, I'm gonna go to the radio stations in California and Oregon, and I'm, I might reach more people than playing at a little bar in Richmond on a corner where, you know, 35 people show up. Right. So I went into going to radio stations like KFOK in the Sierras, John Neff, our friend out there, who does a great job in Sierras. Yeah, I know John. Georgetown, California. So I, I talked to 20 or 30 radio stations in California and Oregon and then put radio station tours together that were community radio in college. And then of course, last year we got ranked number 29th in the United States for new ads radio play for the, by the National Association of College and Community Radio. So that's new ads, you know, two library spin plays, whatever for radio right. stations. So right. That was a record called Submission Admission. Yeah. Now I'll tell you a little bit about my show. It's on Friday nights at 7 p.m. on KGLP 91.7 FM Gallup. And my show, it's called It's Jazz. Okay. And, but I play, as you probably have surmised, across cross swath, if you will, of music from many genres. And uh, I think maybe for the listener, it might seem kind of spastic or sporadic in terms of my selection and styles, but um, that comes from my significant exposure throughout my life of different music and acquisitions, if you will. I remember the days of, of vinyl albums, which by the way, of course, are coming back. Uh, when you thumb through, rifle through all the LPs and pick something maybe based on the name of the band or somebody in the band or the cover, and then uh, continuing on and when CDs were still on the record shelves, uh, that's all changing, of course, but how do you, how do you feel, I and mean, you've sort of indicated it earlier, where your music fits in terms of, if you will, talking categories, which sometimes we don't like to talk about, but where do you fit there? Well, I think it's a convergence of alternative rock, folksy Americana, and then sort of love songs as the background canvas. But I'll tell you, one song I was doing called James River Swim, because I, when I moved back to Richmond after being away for 35 years, I was swimming in the rapids in the summer, just getting back in touch with the town. And so, you know, it's just all the different influences are very interesting. We had um, this late, we, we ended up doing this um, music video where John Moran, the producer, directed it, and we had this mermaid this lady who was a mermaid in the video. Mm -hmm. And then Terry DeSita is the vocalist, right? So then the, it looks like the mermaid singing on these, as she's, you know, straddling, walking along these rocks. And then we had um, the famous historic Hollywood cemetery. And I'm dressed up in an 1830s Edgar Allan Poe outfit. So, um, 
I, I spent a lot of time hanging out on the James River growing up here. So when I reconnected back in with Richmond, I was actually down at the rapids in the summer, didn't really know anybody here. It's a charming little Southern town that's really laid back. So I got tapped back in to the river and then easily um, the lyrics just poured out for that song. But it's, um, it's right in the heart of the city of Richmond that James runs through, hiking trails and all that. So the embodiment of that whole scene is in that song, James River Swim. But I think I had, I spaced out there for a second, forgot what the, did I answer the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did, you did, I think. I wanted to ask you, um, before we go, what's a question you wish I had asked and the answer to that question? Uh, what was the first time you thought you might have some type of artistic ability or what, when was the youngest age that you tried something musically or artistically? Well, I would just say that in my family, my godmother and Carol used to sing a lot at family gatherings, which were pretty hard partying partying New Orleans family. So you can imagine this going down in Norfolk, Virginia. And then, um, so when I was young, like I'd say 10 or 12 years old, my dad and the neighbor used to get together and have a, you know, have a couple drinks on a Friday or Saturday night. And they had this kid's microphone boom box type thing, chilling out in the basement, big fish tank aquarium down there. So they'd grab this neighbor of mine, Bill had an amazing voice. I mean, back then he was probably singing like some take me home country road or something, John Denver song, right? So I was like, wow, these neighbor and my aunt and you know, a couple friends had these really great voices. Occasionally I'd grab the microphone, but sometimes I do a little painting. So when I was younger, I did like that. But when you're young and you're going to college, you're getting ready to go. I want to also make study something that I can make a living at too. And as an artist, I don't know, you know, I, I don't, I didn't think I saw myself making money as an artist or surviving. I just couldn't figure it out. Right. Yeah. But so, yeah, so that's being surrounded by a couple family singers and then you're, then you start singing in your car. So, you know, for me, it was, before I even recorded the first record, it was 30 years of singing in your car. Um, so yeah, that's where some of those influences came, but you know, it, to, to get something done significantly later, as far as recording a record and putting it together, it takes time, it takes money, it takes uh, some good effort. And, and you know, I wouldn't say it's hard work, it's continual, work one thing after another after another but you know it's really tough for musicians out there because you know if they're bringing income in from tours and stuff because it, it's it's all business as far i mean there's some fun there but it's recording and trying to get a label and a record contract and all this and of course spotify being out there now is just completely changed the entire world yeah. Stephen Jacques, thank you for being with me this this very day and 
hope to hear that you have a very successful tour here coming through this area and we want to wish you all the best good luck on the tour on the albums and on the music wayne ram signing off thank you thank you so much wayne have a great day you too man take care okay all right